Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Is affirmative action a fair policy that rights past wrongs, or is it a way of disadvantaging and even discriminating against some groups, such as Asian Americans? Professor Natasha Wariku is Associate Professor of Education at Harvard University and the author of The Diversity Bargain. She spoke with about 100 students at Harvard, Brown, and Oxford to understand how they make sense of the situation in which they have been thrown. Do they justify affirmative action? Do they criticize it? Or are there different frames to think about this issue that would allow us to make more sense of it without taking sides in this fraud debate? very excited to welcome Professor Natasha Wariku from the Harvard Graduate School of Education to the podcast. First of all, Natasha, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm really interested in talking with you. As you know, affirmative action has been in the public conversation due to several lawsuits, but Harvard, the elite testing schools in New York City, and other such cases, and the public takes a great interest in admissions policies and decisions at elite institutions. And you've, yeah. you've written and you've talked to a lot of students and done sociological research, really deep research, and what people's perceptions are, the people on campus, the students who have been affected by these policies. I'd like to hear how you first got interested in this topic, which kind of captivates the public imagination perennially. We are, we are all really interested in it somehow, although they are very small decisions by relatively limited institutions that affect a really small part of the population, but everybody cares greatly about these things. How did you first get interested in these topics? Yeah, it's funny. I didn't know that these issues would be so much in the public eye. When I started this project, it really started because I was living in the UK, I'm American, and I had gone to the UK and had done some research for my previous book and then was teaching there and was thinking a lot about how people think and talk about diversity and race more broadly speaking. In Britain at the time, there's a real and I think an ongoing kind of 
know, crisis of multiculturalism, and I think in Europe in general, this idea of, you know, there was discussions about has multiculturalism gone too far? Is, you know, what are the kind of limits of accommodation? And discussions that I felt were so different from the way the, I mean, there are many issues related to race and diversity in the United States, but just very different ways of thinking about these issues, you know, in part because of the different histories of these two countries and two continents, really. But that's what got me interested in thinking about how people make sense of race in the United States and Britain. And then beyond that, I started thinking about higher education, because what I realized was that my own experience in higher education in the United States was one in which there was a lot of discussion about race and difference and identity. And this was something that we grappled with, you know, 20 something years ago when I was a university student and campuses still uh, grapple with today. And I was teaching in Britain at the University of London and at an institute there. And I noticed the absence of those discussions among our students, among the faculty, you know, when we talked about admitting students and, and grading in all kinds of ways. And I found that surprising. And so I started thinking about how experiences in higher education shape the way that we think about diversity and race. And I was also really interested in elites and meritocracy and this idea of who are the winners in society and how do they think about their own position as winners especially in an unequal society. So I think all of those things sort of came together that and led me to investigate how students think about admissions. And it's interesting when you think that it sometimes takes someone to go abroad and to be in England and to realize how common it is to have these conversations in yes. this country, although they are far from easy or far from automatic and they're very content contentious and complicated, but they take place. Yes. And, you just mentioned a meritocracy. I'm interested. I think my assumption would have been that America is a meritocracy, sort of the best win out, individualism, you know, self-reliance, you work hard. But in your book, you actually explain that this concept doesn't comes neither from America nor was it meant to be a compliment to anybody. <laughs> right. So the word meritocracy really comes from a book by Michael Young, which was a satire. And it came in the 1950s. He was English and he was writing about this idea he, it was sort of a sarcastic discussion of what happens when you create these systems of meritocracy and give rewards to the people that win them and alongside inequality so that it's, you know, just a coincidence that the elites continue to, you know, win in these meritocratic processes. So it serves to legitimate their position. And so this is this kind of sarcastic kind of dystopian kind of humorous really vision he has this line about how you know eventually genetics and marriage become aligned and so you know it's it both an oligarchy and a meritocracy because they become one and the same and so but i don't think many people know the origins of that word right and also in the united states we very much have as you described this ideology of equal opportunity and we should be able to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and you know, I think a lot of people think that inequality is okay as long as everyone gets a fair chance, right? But the reality is that we are more unequal when you look at the income distribution, you know, the GD coefficient, the, the relationship between what high income earners and low income earners are earning 
that gap is much bigger in the United States than other OECD countries. Intergenerational mobility is also weaker in the United States. That is that the relationship between what we earn and what our parents earn is stronger than in other OECD countries. So, and Britain is not far behind the United States compared to, again, the rest of Europe. And what that says is that, you know, if you grow up poor, you're likely to be poor. If you grow up wealthy, you're likely to be wealthy. And this flies against this idea that we are a meritocratic system, a system of equal opportunity. And there's two parts. The word merit, I think, to me, it sounds always very neutral. It sounds sort of it's merit. It's who actually merits attention or the opportunity. So who gets into a school or a job or something like that. So it has, which is funny that you said it was a sarcastic kind of critique that people define merit to benefit their own class or their own group. And now it's a word that's supposed to be neutral in conversations about admission. We only look at the merit. Right. As if that's a okay. neutral objective criteria. And you're saying it had been originally framed to say this benefits the people who define the terms of admission. That's right. That's and, right. Yeah. And the second thing is when you said that the social mobility, so how our parents' generation has belonged to a certain class, and then we move up. That college is another one of those really critical symbolic sites in American culture, that yeah. this is the vehicle, this is the elevator, this is the way to lift people out of, you know, difficult circumstances and, and let them enter into the middle class and great success. Yeah. And I think we place kind of all our eggs in that basket, right? And yet, you know, I think Harvard has come a long way in terms of expanding access to the university. And yet the vast majority of students are coming from wealthy families. You know, I think just over half of students are on financial aid, but that means that, you know, close to half of the students are not and are paying more than the median household income every year to go to a place like Harvard. And Harvard is not, you know, unique in this regard among elite colleges by any means. But I think this, you know, talk of we're expanding financial aid, we're increasing diversity, we have affirmative action, I think legitimates this as a meritocracy, when actually, in spite of all that, it's still serving, disproportionately serving elites. And in a way, that legitimation is problematic because it tells people, it tells students who arrive, you are the best of the best. And it tells others who don't make it that, you know, you're a little less worthy. And I think that legitimation of this selection process is problematic because, again, students will leave here with that degree from, you know, and it's not, again, it's not just Harvard. I don't want to target Harvard, but all of these elite places is, you know, an Ivy League degree and that compounds the advantages that people already come in with. And it's interesting that then they get affirmed and they believe they were chosen on these neutral objective yeah. criteria. What drops out is probably a large discussion, or it doesn't totally drop out, about secondary schools and the inequality in preparation that some schools are underserved, some schools have great resources. The students are probably aware of that, that they come from all sorts of different schools. And in your book, you talk about how they're kind of taught to make sense of that. So they had different opportunities, but somehow when they get and arrive at the gates of one of those great colleges, that all falls away. But they were supposed to have taken advantage of their own conditions in different ways. Yeah, so they are taught and they believe that the way selection should happen is that in the United States, Britain is different, but in the United States, they believe that you need to have taken advantage of all the opportunities available to you, right? And they recognize the great inequality of secondary education in the United States. So they say, well, you know, if you went to a high school that only offers one 
advanced placement exam and you took that course and you aced the exam and there's someone else who went to a school with more resources that offered 10 and that student took say four and did well in those well that first student you know maximized the opportunities available and so that first student should get into the university over the second student so there is some kind of belief in this calibration and again this idea is that university does that and they do it well enough that it legitimates the system, right? So we can't close our eyes to inequality, but we need to make sense of inequality and still maintain our sense that this is a fair system and this is a legitimate system. Because if I call that into question, I'm calling into question my own sense of accomplishment. And these students all work really hard in high school. You know, you can't well, you know, unless you're Jared Kushner, <laughs> but, you know, dudes who come to these elite colleges, for the most part, have worked very hard right. in high school. But what legitimating the system does is tell them that they worked harder than others and doesn't let them see how they had opportunities to work hard. You know, okay, so you were the top soccer player, but your parents were able to pay for a private coach or to play on a club team, or you were the top, you know, flutist, but... You worked hard, but you also had private lessons with, you know, a top instructor, et cetera. And so these two things go side by side, but these legitimating these systems makes it hard to see that. And I think this question you said earlier about the kind of construction of merit is a really important point, right? How we define merit has changed over time in the United States, even if we just take, say, college admissions. There's a great book by Jerome Carabell about admissions to Harvard, Princeton, and Yale talks about how, you know, the universities change their definition of merit over time to suit their institutional needs, right? So it's very much about what is the university trying to do? And there are moments in history when they're trying to be more inclusive, right? When they're trying to get more working class students, when they're trying to get more African-American students. And there are times when they use definitions of merit to narrow opportunity, where they're trying to limit the number of Jewish students admitted. There are some claims, and I, I think this is a complicated question, you know, about whether there are mechanisms to reduce the number of Asian-American students, for example. But I think overall, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, merit is definitely not neutral, and it's used to legitimate these institutions. That's interesting, because as you just said, there's been studies and conversations for a hundred years that all schools tailor kind of the criteria by which they admit students because they want certain students to arrive there. And That's then, right. as you also say in your book, the courts decide certain things. They don't determine everything that the courts give us guidance. You have to operate within the limits of the law, but there are ways in being somewhat flexible without being outside of the law. And the court has recognized that many criteria taken all together are still permissible, that the contentious one in America, which is interesting that race is the contentious one. You could imagine a society where all sorts of other criteria would be the most debated or offensive ones. So, for example, legacy admissions, <laughs> parents went to Harvard or Yale, would be the most yeah. outrageous in a society that said, how can they use a criteria that their parents went to a school, which has nothing to do with the children's achievements. Yeah, But that's not debated in the public. Or you could say, you know, athletes or musicians or people yeah. from certain, you know, areas of the country, because those schools used to really largely admit students from the Northeast, and then they expanded their... Yeah. But none of those criteria are really contested. Or gender, yeah. there were no female students at Harvard yeah. uh, until the late 60s through the association with Radcliffe College. 
but none of those have really generated the same kind of debates. Yeah, I think there are two reasons for that. First, I, I do think, and I think especially with this lawsuit, I do think there's been a lot more attention to legacy admissions and athletic recruiting. And in the academic world, there's been discussion about these for some time. You know, among the students, there certainly was less support. I was surprised by how much support there was for legacy admissions. It was about half of students supported it but half didn't, and students were a lot more supportive of, say, affirmative action. So I do think that those other issues are contentious. You know, I think we've been seeing increased discussion in the public domain of these as, again, this Harvard trial has been unfolding and you know, the airing of the dirty laundry. It's ironic that race is a protected category, right, under the law because of anti-discrimination law, right? It's a special category where organizations have to be careful about considering race because in the past, United States has historically used race to exclude people, as in legalized segregation right. and right. all of the things that go with it. These laws were designed to protect African Americans in particular. And so the irony now is that it's being used kind of against African Americans or to sort of take away certain policies that would support that community. But I think because it's a legally protected category, it's able to be challenged much more easily in court than these categories of athletics or legacies where the universities really have a lot of freedom to admit students the ways they want. The other issue is that race is so symbolic in the United States and affirmative action has become such a hotbed kind of issue. And it's sort of become one of these, you know, abortion, affirmative action, gun control. These are these touchstone issues that people line up either for or against, and it's very much tied to people's political identity. So, you know, even if you're a person who didn't go to college or is not trying to go to a college, you know, most people go to colleges that are not selective. So affirmative action is not an issue, but you still have a strong view about this because in the public rhetoric, it gets tied to, you know, this is anti-American dream, or there's a sort of discourse in the kind of conservative talking points that pulls affirmative action in, in a way that's very powerful. These other kinds of admission, they don't have the same symbolic value in American society. Right, and there's a, there's a very simple talking point right now that affirmative action is attacked by conservatives who say they should yeah. all be totally neutral. We should be yeah. colorblind. For a moment, yeah. we were post-racial. You talk about this in your book, that you mm -hmm. were quite interested in this generation of students who were brought up with affirmative action with certain kind of values and are now confronted with a culture where a lot of people are telling them this is wrong, affirmative action is wrong, any consideration of race is actually, quote, unquote, racist. Yeah. As you've said, race has been used to segregate, to discriminate for a long time. The courts have made egregiously wrong rulings and they've made right rulings. So from Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 to Brown versus Board of Education, we had a half a century of segregation that was legalized. Then that was overturned. But so affirmative action becomes this point where conservatives just know this is what it means. You're discriminating in favor of a group and against another group. There's no assumption that the system until now had favored anybody. It's completely objective and neutral. That anybody applied and these schools just looked at kids and admitted the best students, right? So there's never a kind of questioning that there was a silent or invisible affirmative action for all sorts of people. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's interesting that what students who were critical often said was, if you're going to think about disadvantage, it should be class, not race, right? So that's always the sort of response, class, not race. You know, if someone is 
African-American child of doctors, well, that person has more privilege than the, you know, person coming from a rural family, poor family that's white. And that may be true, but the reality is that, you know, even within class lines, we know that there is racial disadvantage. So among the poor, you know, African-Americans are more likely to be living in residentially segregated neighborhoods and have fewer resources in their communities. For example, among the wealthy, whites who are wealthy in the United States have accrued much greater amounts of wealth and assets. If we look at wealth and not just income compared to African-Americans, because African-Americans are more likely to be one or two generations out of poverty and much more likely to be connected to across class lines to relatives or extended family, whereas whites are much more likely to have kind of closed social networks among wealthy because they've been wealthy for generations. And so there are all these ways in which even if we're talking about financial resources, that there are these racial differences, but that's very hard for people to see, right? And to sort of put your finger on. And so there is always this discourse of class, not race. And this is a generation that grew up with an African-American president, right? So it's easy for them to think that this is, well, the status we're done. Quo, and it'll yeah. stay like this, as we know, things don't stay the same. And the courts will possibly, the Supreme Court or other courts will take these cases and rule of them. And as you write in your book, there's a higher education in these elite institution embodies some foundational values. So while it won't affect all sorts of people, other schools will follow suit or take some guidance. Even if the law doesn't become more restrictive, they'll say this is generally how we should do things because we yeah. don't want to be attacked by being out of the opinion of the most informed discussion. When you talk to the students, you said they use different frames of analysis to think about this question. And it was interesting that they opted into, you call them frames, kind of interpretive frameworks of how to understand um, access in relation to race and merit, these two questions. Can you talk a little bit about those frames that you found? And you talked to how many students at some of these institutions? Uh, 144 students okay. <laughs> across three universities. And so between Harvard and Brown in the United States and Oxford in the UK. Mm -hmm. And these were students, again, across racial lines as well. So white students, and then we oversampled racial minority students as well in both national contexts to make sure that we had their perspective as well. You found some patterns, some oh, frames right, the, people right. reuse, and there's different kind of frameworks. Yes. Yeah. So I talk about these race frames, which I see as sort of lenses through which students understand the role that race plays in society. And students often had multiple frames, and so they would use a colorblindness frame in response to one question, and then in another part of the conversation, they might use a diversity frame. So a colorblindness frame is just what it says, that race plays no role in American society, apart from its coincidence with class. So, you know, yes, there's racial inequality, but that's because there's class inequality, right? So really, again, being the child of African-American doctors is no different than being the child of white doctors, right? But the reality that we know is that if we look at the demographic profile of those two groups, they will look very different in American society. So there's colorblindness. The diversity frame is almost the opposite, right? Which is that race plays an important role in American society. We all have racial identities that shape who we are, our rituals, our practices, our taste preferences, what we eat, 
And these are differences that we should celebrate and learn from each other, right? So this is a sort of multicultural way of thinking about race. And so this diversity lens is really the justification that has been used for affirmative action in court, right? And even beyond the courts, right? This idea that, well, yeah, we should have affirmative action because we want a diverse learning environment. You know, white students will say, well, that's good for me because I can't be a graduate of Harvard never having, you know, had a conversation with someone who is, African-American, Latinx, Native American. And so this benefits my own learning, right? Because I recognize that they have these racial identities, they think differently, they have different worldviews, and I want to understand those. Those are important, right? So that's the diversity frame. And those are the two most common ones in the United States. Colorblindness was by far more prevalent in the UK. The less common one is a kind of culture of poverty frame, which is sort of the flip side of the diversity frame. It's that it's a negative view of these identities. But what the diversity frame and the colorblindness frame have in common is this lack of attention to inequality, racial inequality. And so there was a small minority of students, mostly in the United States, that had what I call a power analysis frame. And that, that is that they saw the role of race in society as something that is undergirded by different power relationships, right? That there is this racial inequality because of the history of, again, racial injustice and racial exclusion that continues to play a role in our society. It's quite interesting that the diversity frame is the one where we all benefit from being yeah. together with our differences, right? But the way in which you talk about the book, a lot of people say, I really benefit from being with somebody who I've never been exposed to. This yeah. simply numerically in America plays out that it benefits white people more to be around minorities they may have never encountered. Minorities always encounter majority populations that yeah. they can't help it, right? So, And they got yeah. into Harvard, which is a predominantly white institution. So they've been dealing with white people even to get there. And white yeah, people thought, yeah. yeah, I've been dealing with white people, and now is the first time I can meet somebody else, which is a bit of a, yeah. so it's a benevolent yeah. fantasy in a way. And yeah. what's interesting, as you said, this is the argument used in most legal cases and as yeah. the explanation for most universities to justify and explain why we're doing the right thing. We bring people yeah. together, which benefits all of society because the outcome will be better since, A, we have to live together and should get along. And secondly... There's study after study that show a more diverse team will produce better outcomes. So this yeah. is the one that universities use and that is used in the law right now. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a dance between the legal context and like what the universities are doing, but I think it's part of a broader pattern. So, you know, I should say, I think it's important to point out that the students of color said this too, right? And they talked about how they benefit from campus diversity as well, because, and they're not just talking about interactions with whites, they're talking about interactions with other students of color, right? And because the students of color are incredibly diverse as well, and there's international students. And so this diversity frame was very, very pervasive among all students. Among all um, students. So yeah, most, including students, students of color, yeah. Are aware of this, there's yeah. a benefit, an inherent benefit to having a diverse population at, at the university. That's right. And interestingly, I'll give you one example. There was this program on the Brown campus called the Third World Transition Program, TWTP, that has been there for decades, where... It's an orientation for incoming students, mostly who are students of color. So it's technically open to white students, but students of color get a special invitation and it's sort of focused on students of color. I think it's open probably more for legal reasons that they can't exclude white students. So it's predominantly students of color. 
and students had a lot of feelings about this program. Not all students of color come to it, but white students often said, well, you know, they all come to this orientation program before the freshman orientation, and they all become friends with each other. And then, you know, we can't become friends with them because we're shut out of their networks, right? That's the perception among the white students, that they think this program is problematic because of that. Whereas the students of color who go to that program talk about how they have these incredible cross-race conversations and discussions because of course students of color are so diverse, right? And so very different ways of kind of making sense of this. I think, you know, this question of this diversity frame is very complicated. So, you know, it starts out in the Baki decision in the late 1970s where Justice Powell basically is that deciding vote and he says, well, you know, we can allow this in the case of kind of holistic review where considering race is one of a number of factors in the institutional goal of a diverse learning environment in which everyone will benefit. And so that's the legal justification that flies in the court at that time. And going forward, subsequent, then lawyers sort of take that argument up and they use that in subsequent cases, and they're still doing that today. But I think it's part of a larger movement as well in the 1980s, which moves discussions of race from kind of focusing on inequality and racial inequality to a kind of multiculturalism, we all benefit, right? So there's a great book by Ellen Berry called The Enigma of Diversity. And she looks at three cases through the 1980s, most, I mean, you know, from the kind of 70s and beyond. And so one is the University of Michigan, where there is this affirmative action case, two affirmative action cases in, that were decided in 2006 and how they sort of frame race. But she also looks at the corporate sector, how corporations talk about their recruitment of minority workers, and also in a neighborhood and how a neighborhood kind of advertises their housing and tries to get people to buy in. And there is this, again, there's this shift to a kind of diversity framing of like, diversity is good for everyone. You know, white people, you don't want to live in an exclusively white neighborhood. Look how much you'll gain from a diverse neighborhood. And you know, in corporate America, well, if you don't have a diverse staff, you're going to miss out on all the markets, you know, the sort of selling to immigrants and to African-Americans, et cetera. So there is this sort of neoliberal kind of selling of diversity that sort of picks up beyond higher education. I think higher education is just one domain in which this happened. Right. We see an education as well, an education in K-12 education, a focus on inequality kind of shifts to this idea of multiculturalism and you know, we have international potlucks every year and and this kind of thing. I have talked to your colleague, Randall Kennedy, at the law school, Mm -hmm. who's written this book for discrimination, which is a case for affirmative action. He's a defender of affirmative action. And then he told me in our conversation that he feels that liberals in general have made affirmative action look too easy as if there's no cost for anyone. And then he said, the problem we have that in these lawsuits, People are being pitted against one another in maybe not such sincere ways. So Asian Americans are pitted against African Americans. Yeah. No one's going to win that. Frank Wu, which whom I also talked, explained the prayer for relief at the end of that court case against Harvard is not to actually admit more Asian Americans. It is to end affirmative yeah. action, which is really telling. Yeah. So it has nothing to do with yeah. benefiting a group. It says, let's That's end right. this whole practice. And Professor Kennedy said, it's a risk to frame it as a win for all, that everybody benefits, he said, when yeah. there are costs, because then it gets easily attacked. That people can then say, well, this diversity frame is great that you all benefit so much from being with each other, but someone is left out. And he said, if yeah. you don't talk about this, so 
It's interesting. And do you feel this when you talk to the students and they use these frames, as you said, somewhat interchangeably, they're very aware of them. They're actually really aware of these questions and debates because they themselves have gone through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that critique because I think in a way this diversity argument becomes a bit of a straw man, right? It's easy to attack it because it erases. So, you know, when I was talking about this multiculturalism, I think that's great. And as you said, the research shows that we all benefit from diversity, right? Different ways of understanding the world, increased perspectives, better functioning teams. So, you know, I think that those benefits are real and they're important and we should recognize them. But at the same time, it should not replace our attention to racial inequality. And I think that's what's happened is this love for this diversity and multiculturalism has made us forget about, you know, the real roots of affirmative action was not that. It was about addressing racial exclusion and racial inequality. And that problem, I don't think it's the same as it was 50 years ago, but I do think that we still have pretty significant racial inequality. And this is just one small policy to address that. But we can't lose sight of that. And then we are teaching our students most of our students are unaware, right? Because they're not taught about racial inequality, you know, beyond slavery and segregation in school. And they don't understand what are these differences and how does it continue to affect the lives of people and opportunities today, right? And so to me, that is the fundamental problem is if no one believes that race continues to play a role in people's lived outcomes, then then it's hard, you know, I think when people understand that, it's hard not to support affirmative action. But we don't even talk about that anymore. But I share your hope, let's say, if people understand Mm -hmm. that, that they will see there is a point to affirmative action, which is not just make everybody feel better by being with all these different people, but there are historic reasons and present-day reasons for it, because there are still systems in place that actually disadvantage people, and the other ones advantage people invisibly, and it's worthwhile to actually show them and reveal them. The diversity bargain is something that people then enter into and you describe it. And it's, it sounds kind of promising when I picked up the book, I thought, oh, there's a way to kind of make sense of it and not lose too much on either side. And this is sort of striking a bargain. Like I thought maybe it meant compromise or something. (laughs) Sorry to disappoint. (laughs) It doesn't quite mean that. Can you explain what people, what do you mean by diversity bargain when you wrote this book at the, after you talked to these 144 students? Yeah, so the diversity bargain, I'll talk about the diversity bargain in the U.S. because it's a little different in Britain. The diversity bargain is this, that white students tend to support affirmative action and they do so more readily than kind of ordinary Americans who are more mixed on affirmative action. But they do so mostly because they see personal benefits, right? So they buy into this idea, well, yeah, it's good because I will be better educated. I need this, right? I don't want to go to a college campus that's exclusively white. And so they support it. And so that's, if you're someone like me who thinks it's a good policy, then you think that's a good thing. The problem is that because they tend not to acknowledge inequality, that it leads to these expectations that I think are problematic. So there are three that I talk about in the book. And the first is that they expect if affirmative action is about benefits to themselves, then they expect their peers of color to be integrated at all times, right? So they get annoyed when they see a table of black students in the cafeteria because they're all assumed to have benefited from affirmative action. And if they have, they're supposed to be enlightening their white peers. And of course, 
you know, that same student won't necessarily notice the table of white students on the other side of the cafeteria because that's more the norm, right? But so there are these expectations of their peers of color. And you can imagine those expectations are problematic, right? Because those students are there to get an education just like they are, not to edify other peers, this, right? I had two Harvard students and several other students from other institutions, so Salma Abdurrahman and Nicholas Whitaker, and they explained to me, we are not here to teach you what it means to be a student of color. And I said, right. I really appreciate the irony that you're on the podcast and speaking with me. And they said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we realized that this is actually a deep irony. You've asked us to come on the podcast. But they were very thoughtful and said what you just said. It is exhausting and it interrupts my studies. I'm not there to teach people constantly what it feels like to be me, what it feels like to look like me. They say that is not my job. I'm not a teacher at Harvard. I'm a student there and I'd love to do my work. And instead, I'm put in this role to constantly educate people about what it means to be a person of color in America. See, that is not my appointment. So they said it right. interferes with actually their yeah. purpose there, which is the university should take care of say this is not the role of minority students to do that because that interferes with what they're supposed to do, which is study and learn. Sure. And if the student then complains and says, well, you know, this syllabus doesn't reflect my lived experience or, you know, their lack of minority voices. And then, you know, faculty will often come to them and say, well, who would you put on the syllabus? You know, the student's like, I'm a student here. You're the professor, right? And so I think that, you know, even aside from their peers, they sometimes will get it from the staff and the faculty as well in right. a way that's problematic. I think this way of thinking about race leads students to have these kind of essentialized understandings of what it means to be Black or Latinx in American society. And that's often associated with poverty, right? So if they have, you know, a Latinx peer who comes from a wealthy family, they'll think, well, rather than expanding their idea of what it means to be Latinx or African-American or Native American in American society, they'll say, well, why did that person benefit from this? And that person's lived experience is just like mine. I mean, it's it's probably not, but there's this assumption, again, because of social class, that their experience is no different. So there are these kind of essentializing ways that students kind of make sense of their minority peers. So this diversity bargain is sort of allows people to be in favor of affirmative action as long as they can see their benefits for themselves. So it protects That's their right. status, and it's not a direct awareness saying I'm defending a problematic status. It's just I'm here. I deserve to be here. I got in and I have to find a way to make sense of that. That's right. That's right. After you've done your work, you're doing this research and you said a moment ago, the power analysis frame, this frame of inequality is not as pervasive among students. Is there, That's right. Do you think universities, and they do take a role to shift toward that frame and say, and teach their students something else in addition? So there's the admissions part, and then there's the on-campus yeah. part. So I think that there are pockets on these campuses, and this is where the contrast between Brown and Harvard comes in, because I think Brown has a much stronger focus on this, what I would call a power analysis frame. So Harvard, in general, takes a much more integrationist approach. A few examples that I give are that their orientation or their diversity conversation is done. It's a 90-minute conversation with students living on the same hall. So obviously, an integrated group of students has this discussion about diversity at the beginning of the year. The other things, like their diversity center is called the Harvard Foundation for Intercultural Affairs. And so it was very much defined as a kind of cross-race space. 
their housing, when the university saw a little bit of segregation in terms of where students were choosing to live, they said, all right, we're going to randomize housing now. You don't get to choose where you live. You can choose your friends, and then you get randomly assigned. So Harvard does all these things to kind of integrate students, which I think is great, but I think that that space to support the students of color is lacking. Whereas Brown might be sort of on the other end, where it's very focused on supporting students of color. So Brown's Center for Students of Color for many years was called the Third World Center, recently renamed a few years ago to the Center for Students of Color. So it's deliberately still named as a place for students of color. And, you know, if you look at the missions, you'll see different missions. There's a focus on social justice in the Brown Center for Students of Color. Their orientation I mentioned earlier is the Third World Transition Program, which is this multi-day orientation program primarily for students of color. And, you know, their agenda is like there's a workshop on racism and sexism and colonialism and very focused on a kind of power analysis understanding the roots of inequality in American society and beyond. The problem, I think, with the Brown model is that there was, the white students were very alienated from a lot of this programming, so they were not pulled in to these conversations as well. So I think there's a, there's a balance. We need both of those things, right? We need white students to be on board as well, but we also need spaces for the students of color to be supported on these predominantly white campuses. So to have both, and as you said, the students are able to switch between frameworks, and I think what you're saying is that this is the universities are symbolic spaces and sites for American culture. And we probably we need both. Some universities, as you know, have taken strong stances against safe spaces, et cetera. I had yeah. a student on Cameron OKK has been on who was at the University of Chicago and actually explained very thoughtfully how what people called safe spaces allowed him to succeed at the University of Chicago as yeah. a student who he said the university admitted for what he wouldn't have called, but if he had read your book at that point, he would have called the diversity bargain. There's a benefit mm. to all of it. But then he said, then they kind of fail to make sense of what his role is there. Yeah. So they admit Princeton, yeah. but the institution hasn't changed. So, so I think the frames you're proposing, the diversity frame, power analysis frame, and colorblindness frame, which is as problematic as it sounds, is how people make sense of the world. They have to all be taught at least to be exposed that these are frames people use rather than we all think about race, merit, admissions, and we know what we're talking about. I think a lot of the confusion is that people use different frames and switch back and forth. Yeah, and that's what frames are, you know, kind of sociologically. They're sort of lenses through which we see the world, but we don't realize that we're putting them on, right? And we don't realize that that's how we're making sense of the world. So I think it's helpful to sort of unpack that and make sense of what is our starting point for making sense of this and what's missing, right? What's missing when we say that race doesn't play a role apart from class in American society? And the other consequence that I wanted to highlight in terms of this diversity bargain is this idea of reverse discrimination. So white students would say things like, it creates this anxiety, saying that affirmative action is for your own benefit creates this anxiety among whites that it will, quote unquote, go too far, right? So these students have all gotten into Ivy League universities, but imagine going on to applying for internships or jobs or a fellowship or graduate school. Eventually, they're not going to get something, right? And then affirmative action is an easy target. And students would say things even like, the student at Harvard said, well, if I hadn't gotten into Harvard, I would have felt that I'd experienced racial discrimination. And so it's a script. I call it a script in people's minds because it already exists. It's like you got into Harvard, but that anxiety is still there in the back of your mind. And imagine what that student doesn't get into 
you know, their top choice graduate school, then it's easy to blame affirmative action because affirmative action is no longer benefiting me. And that's next to what you were saying earlier and what Randall Kennedy was saying about this sort of lack of recognition that it's not just about, you know, personal benefit. It can't just be about personal But that's fascinating that there's a script in place that affirmative action plays a role in, and it's not really a real analysis of affirmative action is what it's meant to do, what it has done historically or in the present, but rather, if something doesn't work out, I'm going to blame this thing. That's right. You know, they don't say that, but they believe it, right? And that's problematic. Right. Do the students at Harvard take a lot of interest in this court case, do you think? Are they very aware of it? I mean, it's not a nice thing to be in the class <laughs> of the public. <laughs> yes, it's very much on the minds. I mean, you know, now obviously it's died down a little bit at the end of the semester, and the trial part at least is over for now. It'll be back in the news in the new year for sure. I teach at the Graduate School of Education, so you know, our admissions process is separate from the undergraduates, but it's certainly been a topic here as well. And students are really trying to make sense of you know, what this is, and the admissions process is so complex, and right. you know, I think bringing Asian Americans into the mix as well makes it even more complex. I think a lot of Asian American students are trying to make sense of this as well. So. Right, how they fit into this equation. And right. I have somebody on the podcast coming on Friday, a graduate student at Brown, who says that the role of Asian Americans in campus politics has been underplayed, actually, that they have taken a very mm. important role in solidarity with other groups, and they are kind of cast now as if they're against racial justice. So that's a very tricky role to be in, I think, if you're named in a lawsuit as a group and you may not agree with this characterization. It's interesting. I was talking to a local reporter who was reporting on this issue and he said that, you know, he went to the Harvard campus to try to interview students and did find some students, both white and Asian, who supported the lawsuit, but none of them would agree to be interviewed many more were not supporting this lawsuit because of the attack on affirmative action. And so he thought that that was the predominant view. But you're right that the case makes it seem like that. And it also pits, you know, minorities against each other. And I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the lawsuit is a whole other conversation. But, you know, the fact that they're attacking affirmative action, which is trying to create equity and not legacy admissions or athletic recruiting, which two policies that are pretty clearly creating more advantage for advantaged young people, that that's not their issue because it's not that they care about Asian Americans because, you know, Asian Americans are not benefiting from legacies, admissions, or athletic recruiting as much as whites, right? What's your next project on? What are researching now? So I'm studying Asian Americans in the suburbs and the growth of Asian Americans in well-to-do suburbs and the race relations in those communities and the broader questions around kind of the culture of excellence, academic competition, and you know all of this is sort of culminates in the college admissions process, right? So in some ways, it's a continuation of my work on the admissions and meritocracy, but kind of looking downward at high school and the high school experience and what happens when you have these ethnic change alongside this competition for spots at these elite places. What do parents do? What do kids do? What are seen as the right ways of getting ahead? And these kinds of questions. I'd love to have you back on maybe in a couple of months. I think it's such an important conversation to say, what does success mean in America for different groups? What does integration, the model, how do people assimilate if the script is not meant for them? All these questions, I think that's really, it's high school students somehow have to package themselves now and correspond to certain expectations. That's really interesting. Yeah. 
I'd love to be back. <laughs> I want to thank you. Thank you so much. So I'll put the references to the diversity bargain in the links to the podcast. And Natasha, I really want to thank you. It's such important work. And I really am grateful that you provide these frames through which to think some of these really complicated questions. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And I hope you'll have a good break. Okay. Thank you. Thank and you. you. Okay. Bye-bye.